You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Our text before us is Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29. Then he, that is Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, that is Jacob. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the field, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, 
Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Beloved, this is God's holy word. You may be seated. And before we dive in, let's, ple- let's pray and let's plead for grace and mercy and understanding. God, thank you so much. Thank you for your, for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to a sinful humanity who did not deserve your grace and yet you have lavished and bestowed grace upon the least likely recipients, God. In this text, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding and illumination and the knowledge of your will, God, that we would see with eager anticipation, the hope that is laid up for us in Christ. God, would you grant for us to see clearly the inheritance that is to be your churches. God, would you do this? Would you leave us in awe, worshiping you? We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, we're at chapter 49 and into 50. We are finally at the end of this book. We're not at the end end, since next week Pastor Dylan will come and preach the very final portion of our text, but this passage in front of us is really significant because this is the final story and account of Jacob. And I know we've been saying that for weeks, right? This is is a dying man's last words, but This week, this is actually the end, the final, final episode of Jacob. Last week, we saw Jacob pronounce his final blessings upon his children, right? In chapter 47, he pronounced and declared and commanded that his sons bury him in the land, the promised land, and then we see him bless Joseph, and then in chapter 49, we see Jacob bless the other 11, And then here in this text, we see the book end to this section where Jacob again is commanding that his sons bury him in the land. And so Jacob has put all of his affairs in order and this morning we see him truly take his final breath as this patriarch from the line of Abraham, from the line of Isaac, closes his eyes in death. And death is the great equalizer of all of us, right? Not even the great patriarch from the line of Abraham can escape the clutches of the grave. However, although we see another death in this chapter, in this final chapter of Genesis, what we also see in this text is that the people of God are those who grieve, yet not without hope. We see grief and sorrow in this text, but we also see great hope for the people of God. What we see in this text is the anticipation of God's future salvation in light of God's past faithfulness. What we see in this text is the anticipation, the forward-looking hope of God's future salvation 
in light of God's past faithfulness. If there is a key word for this text before us, it's anticipation. Anticipation. And so, as we move into the text, we see a natural division and breakup. For you note takers, we we see five different breakups here. I'm not gonna go strictly according to this structure. We're just gonna flow through the narrative. But first, we see Jacob's command, right? He commands again to have his sons bury him in the promised land. Second, we see he, he finally passes away and he's gathered to his people and there's great grief and lamentation that follows. Third, we see Joseph's request, right? We see him request before the Pharaoh if he can leave the land of Egypt to go and bury his father in Canaan at this very specific field. And then next we see a funeral procession and then finally we see Joseph and his brothers and all of the great amounts of people that go with him return back into the land. So this is the natural breakup of this text. And so let's just jump right in. Look with me at verse 29 as Jacob commands his sons to bury him in the land of promise. Verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And so Jacob is very clear. He's not parsing words. He's very clear about where he is to be buried in this field that is his father's, which was passed down by his father, Abraham. And these instructions, they aren't new to us. Remember, we saw them back at chapter 47, at the end of 47, before Jacob blesses Joseph and his sons. But most importantly, Jacob's repetition of these instructions, of this command, is to reiterate his faith in God, who promised that the offspring would come and possess the whole entire land. This is a reiteration of the faith of God that God would grant this land that he has promised to his people. Long ago, Abraham bought this small plot of land at Machpelah as a deposit. Remember when he buried Sarah, his wife, he bought this land as a deposit as if it were on layaway. But in Jacob's death and in his desire to be buried in the land with his ancestors, he is declaring by faith that there's coming a day, there is coming a day when the Lord would grant the entire land as a possession, where the deposit would turn into the full possession. When this wouldn't just be on layaway, but that God's people would truly inhabit the land as God promised. So Jacob instructs 
his sons. Then he gets back into bed and humbly accepts his fate. As we see in verse 33, he breathes his last and was gathered to his people. And it's here in the text where Joseph just loses it. In verse one, we see him weeping over his father's face, weeping, shedding tears, lamenting, grieving, embracing his father as if to turn back the clock of time so that he could gaze into his father's eyes one last time. And yet, even here, even here in Jacob's death and in Joseph's grieving, we see grace from God. We see God fulfill his promises yet again. Remember back in chapter 46, before Jacob makes that journey into Egypt to see his son, Joseph? Jacob is promised by God. God says to him, Joseph will be the one who closes your eyes in death. And although this is, this is a really heavy and weighty scene, it's also filled with grace because God keeps his promise. God is a covenant-keeping God. It's also important to note in this text that Joseph here, he's mourning, but he's not mourning alone. But the whole nation of Egypt is mourning alongside with him. And the magnitude of this mourning from the entire nation of Egypt is to signal to us the kind of weight that this patriarch held, not only in Joseph's eyes and not only in the Israelites' eyes, but also in the people of Egypt as they sought to honor Joseph, the second in command. According to John Walton, the common pharaoh of this time would have received a mourning process, lamentations for 72 days, and here in the text, in verse 3, the Egyptians wept over him 70 days. This is a Pharaoh-like lamentation. We see here, this is a really significant moment, not only for Joseph and for the people of God, but for everyone involved. And then we get to verse 4. Verse 4 reads, when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And so this next movement in the text just makes sense. It's the next logical step. Jacob gives this command to his sons. He passes. He's gathered to his people. There's mourning and lamentation. And then the days of weeping end. And Joseph has to ask permission. He cannot just leave Egypt on a whim. This isn't like requesting time of bereavement from any old employer because his employer is the king of the known world at this time and Joseph is second in command. It's clear that when Joseph is around, things prosper. 
right? So this is actually a really big deal for him to ask this request. And yet, as we see in verse six, Pharaoh says, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And again, we see in the pages of Holy Scripture another example of God, the king above all kings, ruling and reigning and moving the the mind and hearts of kings in his hand like a little bead of water. And so permission is granted. And then we see in verses 7 through 13 the funeral procession to follow. And overall, this scene is really royal and it's formal and it's weighty. Right? Just overall, the scene is just really significant. It holds a lot of weight. This isn't a burial in obscurity, but it's a spectacle to behold as Joseph and his brothers and the people of Israel and everyone commemorate and honor Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The text says there's a massive group of people, right? There's a massive group making this trek northeast from Egypt to the promised land. And there's just something fascinating about a large group of people marching in unison together. When Jamie and I, when we lived in Kentucky, in Louisville, uh, we were there when Muhammad Ali passed away. And Muhammad Ali was born and raised in Louisville. And so on that day when they had the funeral procession, it was a 17-car procession, and it was going and weaving in and out of the city on a 19-mile on a route, and more than 100,000 people lined the streets of Louisville. And you could barely see the color of the car because of all the flowers that were thrown on the hearse as people were running up and touching the hearse and crying and kissing the car as they were lamenting and, and wailing and mourning over one of their own. And similarly, in this passage before us, we have everyone come out to see what's going on, and not only to see, but to participate in this procession. From Pharaoh's servants to the elders, right? We see in verse seven, the the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, they all come out, and that's only on Egypt's side. You turn the page, and it says, all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household, Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And so essentially the land is just emptied out for this procession, for this mourning, for this journey as they make their way to the promised land to bury Jacob the patriarch in the field that is Abraham's. And when this great company of both Israelites and Egyptians, they arrive at the Jordan River in verse 10, The text says they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. So again, we see this is a scene of high honor and esteem for the patriarch. But it's also a very weighty and significant scene of mourning and grief and loss. It's a mixed bag. We see honor and yet we see sorrow. We see esteem and yet we see grief. 
However, what's most important about this funeral procession and what's most important about this whole entire scene is that this actually looks a lot like the Exodus. What we see in this scene is this is a picture of the Exodus which is to come. If you look at your Bible, the very next page, it says Exodus, right? This is the second book of Moses. As the story of redemption continues, we get into Exodus and we see 400-ish years later, the people of Israel are still in the land of Goshen and yet they are fulfilling what God has promised. They are growing in multitudes in the land. They're being fruitful, they're multiplying in the land and the effect, the net effect of that is the Pharaoh of the time, 400 years later, is not as kind and benevolent to the people of Israel and he fears what would happen if the Israelites continue to grow and potentially overtake the Egyptians. So he decides to enslave them and he, he finds that they are a threat to his kingdom. He enslaves them and he forces them to hard labor, right? You, we, we know the story. We've read Exodus 1 through 15 or at the very least we've seen the prince of Egypt, right? God hears the cries of his people. God hears the cries of his chosen people and he remembers his covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so God raises up and preserves Moses, an Israelite, to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And we know the story, right? Pharaoh says no. His heart is hardened. As we read in uh, my, my children's Bible devotional, there's a picture of Pharaoh like this with his ears plugged, right? Because he's not listening to God. And so God, in order to wake him up and cause for him to listen, God sends plagues into the land, right? We see all sorts of things happen. There's frogs which fill the land, all sorts of pestilence, gnats, flies, diseased livestock boils and sores on all the Egyptians, hail, locusts, which eat up the crops, darkness. And then we finally get to this last plague, which God prepares for Egypt since Pharaoh and the people of Egypt are not listening. And it's a death of the firstborn. Every firstborn in the house of Egypt will die. And so the final plague commences and it's at this point where the Pharaoh finally unplugs his ears and says, okay, I'll let you go. Just get out of here. Go. We don't want you here. And then he says, oh, by the way, bless me. But then the, the people of Israel, they go, right? They leave and they journey and they find themselves at the Red Sea. But then Pharaoh again hardens his heart and says, no, why did we ever let them go? We need to pursue them and kill them. And this is that great monumental scene where God splits the Red Sea and causes for the people of Israel to walk on dry ground. And as the chariots and as the horsemen follow the Israelites, God closes up the sea on the armies of Egypt. And so deliverance happens, right? This is rescue. This is deliverance. This is how God brings his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. 
But once again, that isn't for another 400 years. That isn't until we get into the book of Exodus. Here in our text this morning, we see here a glimpse, a picture. It's a foreshadowing of that deliverance which is to come. It's like a prototype before the final product gets released to market. Notice the similarities in both accounts, both in, at the end of Genesis and in Exodus. These, these Exoduses, this mini Exodus and this actual Exodus, they both start out with the impetus of death. Death is that catalyst which brings about Exodus. Right? It's the death of Jacob which prompts Joseph to ask for permission to leave. It's the death of the firstborns in Egypt, which actually prompts the people of Israel to leave the land. In both accounts, there's a great company, right? In this text before us, it could have just said Joseph and his brothers went, but the text is so emphatic and clear that there was a great company of people. There was chariots and horsemen. Verse nine says, that it was a very great company. There's all sorts of people, and this is, to, this is to remind us, as we know the story, of the future exodus to come. And in both accounts, we see a very similar route. They leave Egypt, they go northeast, and they find themselves beyond the Jordan. They find themselves near the Jordan. This would have been where the people of Israel would have been 400 years later as they are on the brink of conquest in Israel, right? Therefore, this is a glimpse. This is a glimpse of deliverance to come. But then, church, look with me at the last verse of our passage. Verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. There's this grand procession, this really big event, this micro exodus that happens. And then in an anticlimactic way, they just go back to Egypt. They just walk back, Joseph and the brothers. It's kind of unsettling, right? There's hope, right? It's forward-looking. It looks great. And then they just go back to Egypt where they will eventually be enslaved. And it's here at this part of the sermon we get to the so what, right? So what? What is the point? What is Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, trying to communicate to us. And Moses, as he is inspired by the Spirit, is penning this down so that when we get to the end of Genesis, we don't stop at a dead end cul de sac, but actually we get to the end of a road where we see a panoramic vista of God's provision and deliverance and grace his future grace, which he will reveal to his people. So this text is all about anticipation. It's forward-looking. It's proleptic. It causes us to look forward. And if we've seen anything in Genesis, we have seen 
that God has been faithful, right? This forward-looking perspective is only made possible because God has proven himself faithful in the past. We can only hope for redemption and salvation and restoration in the future if God has proven himself faithful in the past and we have seen that all throughout this book where God has proven himself really big and strong with big and beautiful promises to really big sinners and failures. And so there is hope for the future for the people of God that we see in this text. There's hope for the future in light of God's faithfulness in the past. So we look forward because we look back. We look forward because we look back. And, and for God's people, this dynamic of looking forward and looking back has always been true. God's people have always been a people with their head on a swivel, looking forward and looking back. And so we find ourselves here today looking back as well. We look back 2,000 years ago at the coming of Christ and in his death on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins and his resurrection from the grave to declare victory finally over death. We look back to the one who confronts the sea of our sin and who parts the seas for us to walk on the dry ground of forgiveness and deliverance. We look back to the one who walks on the waters of judgment himself, the one who tramples sea underfoot so that we can say, oh death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And Jesus our savior, our ocean splitter, our sea trampler, he himself was swallowed up in the flood of God's wrath. He endured that for us. He became Egypt for us, even though he was the perfect son of God, far exceeding Israel. So once again, church, we as God's people, we look back. We have a lot to look back to. And we also look forward. We're able to look forward because of what God has done in the past. And this is what we are ultimately waiting for. It's this, the return of Jesus Christ when we live with him and dwell with him so that we can live with him forever. On that last final day, what we're looking forward to is the return of Jesus Christ. We're waiting and we're hoping for that day of final and ultimate deliverance. He has delivered us and he will deliver us. He will deliver us because he already has delivered us at the cross. First Thessalonians 4.16, Paul writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is what we're hoping for. This is what we're longing for. And at this time, grown-ups, I want to address the little ones in our congregation this morning. 
So kiddos, if you can hear me, look right here. What we're talking about is a future hope that we are waiting for and we cannot wait to be with Jesus in heaven. That is our hope. That is our treasure. And it's kind of like a treasure map, which I happen to have one right here. This is an actual treasure map leading to an actual treasure. Just kidding. The real one's at home. But this is, this is what our life is like as we trust and believe in Jesus. You see the, the black dots? That's our journey in this life. As we journey and as we make our way, when we get to the X, you know what the X means, right? X marks the spot. X marks the spot, right? This X, this treasure where it marks the spot, this treasure is Jesus Christ himself. This is what we're longing for. This is what we are waiting for. This is our hope, church. However, this is a longing of ours right now, but it's not quite ours yet. We live in that already and not yet space where we have this great hope, but we are not there yet. We are not there yet where X marks the spot. We are like Joseph and the people of Israel. We're like these people here in this text who see and actually get a glimpse and taste of redemption and deliverance, right? We receive God's promise and yet we are in the land of Goshen, of Egypt yet. We've received this great inheritance, this promise, this deposit, but we're waiting for full possession yet to come. Something we say all the time is the anticipation is killing me, right? Oh, the anticipation is killing me. I can't wait to see that new movie in IMAX, right? The anticipation is killing me. I can't wait for that baseball game or that concert or whatever it is. This anticipation, this hope that we have for certain things, it eats away at us, right? That's what we say, the anticipation is killing me. And yet, for the people of God, we do not say the anticipation is killing me. We say the anticipation is saving me. The anticipation, the hope that we have in Christ to see him face to face where every tear will be wiped away where we will dwell with him in the perfect new heavens and new earth. This, that future hope out there, that is actually saving me right now and sustaining me right now. And this, this anticipation for what is to come, this future hope is something we need right now because how else are we going to make it to the end? How else ought we make it to the end? How else are we supposed to endure all of life's tragedies and struggles and fight against the flesh? How are we to endure apart from this future hope of glory to come? And yes, this life is filled with trouble. Jesus promised that to his disciples. He said, in this life, you 
will have trouble. And yet, he also declared that he has overcome the world. That there is coming a glorious day when all of your pains, all of your anguish, all of your grief and lament and sorrows and struggles and fight against the flesh and sin, where all of it will wash away and we will find ourselves at the shores of God's mercy and grace in eternity on end. And to be clear, what I'm saying, rather what I'm not saying, is that this future hope and glory and joy to come of Christ and his coming and his deliverance, what I'm not saying is that that erases the pain that we experience now. It doesn't remove scars. Jesus himself bore the scars after his resurrection. It doesn't erase the pain necessarily, but what that future hope does is it actually is a very present hope amidst sorrow and amidst pain and struggle and fighting against the flesh. This, is, this future hope is a, actually a present hope. This future glory is present glory now. And what I'm also not saying is that any good gifts that we receive here are nothing and are diminished in light of future glory to come, but rather every good and perfect gift which comes down from us from the Father of lights, this is a shadow and a foretaste of God's goodness and his mercy to come, where we get to experience the joys and pleasures of, of this life, right? And they are glimpses, and they point us to a greater hope, the substance, the source of our salvation, Christ himself. And so what is offered to you in the gospel by faith, what is offered to you is something beyond what you can even imagine, a kind of joy that you cannot even imagine, a kind of joy which Paul says isn't even worthy to be compared to the present sufferings of this time. And so church, this is what we need right now. This word to us is that your future hope in Christ and destination in him is how you are sustained. This is how we make it. In closing, if you would turn with me to Romans 8 again, to our call to worship. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and we'll end our time today in the same place that we begun and started. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so church, may God give us grace by his spirit to wait, to wait with eager anticipation. Calvin would call this living with one foot raised, one foot raised, not only looking and waiting for the glory that will be ours in Christ, but being so ready that you have a foot ready to ascend into that future glory. May God give us grace to wait eagerly for the coming of Christ and for this future hope, which to us right now is a present comfort. Let's pray. God, thank you for this hope that we have. This is not pie in the sky. This is boots on the ground. This is how we make it out of here alive. This future hope that we can't wait for is our very present comfort and encouragement and joy that we get to taste the glories to come. God, that we will actually be with you we will actually be with you face to face. That as Joseph was weeping over the face of his father, God, we one day, when one day coming really soon, will weep in the presence of our great savior and fall on his neck and on his feet and worship him forever and ever. God, this is our great hope. God, thank you. You have proven to be faithful. And so, Lord, we trust what you promise to bring to fruition. What you begin, you complete. We worship you in the splendor of your grace. In Christ's name, amen.